0: Here in London, it's that time of year that makes recording YouTube videos virtually impossible without someone, without someone sending up an accursed firework into the air. It disrupts my flow, it pollutes the sky and don't even get me started on the anxiety it gives my cat. But anyway, there's a good reason behind why people light fireworks around this time and that is to mark the anniversary of a roguish man some 500 years ago. Who try to blow everything up. And by everything, I mean the Houses of Parliament. Remember remember the 5th of November, as the old saying by the poet John Milton tells us. The 5th. Not the 3rd, or the 4th, or any other day in November, but the 5th. Of course, what no one tells you in London is that none of us know how to read a bloody calendar, so fireworks will pretty much sound off for the rest of the week. But I digress why on earth do Brits celebrate Guy Fawkes at all has some variance depending on the time period. Today we look at the evening of November 5th as a celebration of Guy Fawkes failing to destroy the same establishment that we all kinda bitch about now, but also the celebration that many lives were spared due to Guy Fawkes essentially fumbling the bag, so to speak. Amongst those lives was the king and so you might say that by celebrating Guy Fawkes night revelers are also celebrating the continuation and preservation of the royals. But back in the 17th century, the celebration of the 5th of November had a more religious nature where Protestants honoured the day as the day God had protected Britain from what they deemed as tyrannical Roman Catholic rule. It's not so far fetched to say that many may have viewed this as a modern day miracle that would help to shape or at least reaffirm Protestant sentiments. In fact, conflicts over the celebration between Catholics and Protestants were not unheard of in the following years, but not because Guy Fawkes represented the Catholics but because the celebrations once held a very anti-Catholic rhetoric. By the 19th century though, such a theme had eroded and Guy Fawkes night became something of a social commemoration, where much of the religious undertone was simply forgotten about. Bonfires, a rather amusing celebration that still takes place today, sees people literally burning an effigy that represents Guy Fawkes, as well as the complimentary fireworks which some might say are symbolic for the explosions that might have been, had Guy Fawkes succeeded. Ultimately though, in London, we don't really care about any of that, we just like seeing the pretty flashy sparkly colours in the sky. But that's a shame because a lot of us miss out on the extraordinary tale of how one man chose to rise up against the system that he deemed had oppressed his people and that he was willing to go to, well, some morally questionable extremes in order to redeem them. Some call him a revolutionary, others a terrorist. But who was Guy Fawkes? How did he find himself on this course of destruction and did he deserve the punishment that would see no one else try such a thing ever again. We know that Catholicism had become heavily repressed under the reign of one Queen Elizabeth I, especially after she was deemed a heretic by the Pope on the account that he believed she was more in favour of Protestant values. As you can imagine, the Catholics who valued the Pope's authority more than their Queen also denounced her, but this only had the effect of strengthening the Protestant cause, In response to Catholic defiance, Queen Elizabeth I made it illegal for Catholics to celebrate Mass, and illegal for them to marry under their own rights. Dozens of priests were put to death during her reign, and you might say that the Catholics felt as if they were being denied their right to worship. But when Elizabeth died in 1603, many Catholics were hopeful that the succeeding King James I would bring the redemption that they were looking for. King James, after all, was believed to have converted to Catholicism and his mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was the Catholic rival of Elizabeth I and one who'd burned 300 Protestants for the act of heresy. There were even rumours that King James was pretty pally with the Pope and that his placement on the throne would most certainly see the balance tip in favour of the Catholics. But King James threw everyone a curveball when it became clear he didn't support Catholic values, nor even sympathise with them. In 1604, he condemned Catholicism as mere superstition, and pretty much carried on Queen Elizabeth's regime against them. He ordered the Catholic priests, those who would not surrender to Protestant beliefs, to simply pack up their bags and leave the country. He began to issue fines to those who did not attend Protestant services and became most energetic in curbing Catholic presence attempts to dethrone the anti-Catholic King were indeed made, though much like the Gunpowder Plot, they too would fail. A plot by Catholic priests to kidnap King James, known as the Byplot, plot was ultimately ruined by Catholics themselves, who betrayed the instigators to the King. Another plot, known as the Main Plot, which goes hand in hand with the byplot, plot sought to outright kill King James instead, but this too failed. Each failed attempt of course only reinforced Protestant belief that God was truly on their side, for why else would King James be so divinely protected? It wouldn't be until a year later in 1604 was the trend of assassinating King James reawoken by five men who'd gathered in the Duck and Drake Inn in London. But these men weren't in the business of kidnapping King James, nor even quickly shanking him in the back. No, these men sought to up the ante and bring retribution not just upon King James but all Protestant authority in the Houses of Parliament. Guy Fawkes, also known as Guido Fawkes, was thought to have been born April 13, 1570, somewhere in Stonegate York. He was the second eldest amongst four other siblings and was raised in a Catholic household, in perhaps a somewhat reasonably well-off family, considering his grandparents were the children of prominent merchants. But whilst we know little about the family dynamics of the Fawkes, we do know that Guy's father, Edward Fawkes, a proctor, died when he was very young. His mother would remarry to another Catholic man in Dennis Bainbridge, where it is believed that Fawkes would come to absorb much of his own views on Catholicism. It's also understood that much of his time at St Peter's School in York, also influenced some of his later views, especially when you consider the fact that the headmaster and various figureheads at the school publicly refused Protestant services by simply not showing up to them. Amongst them, Guy would meet fellow classmates John Wright and his brother Christopher Wright, both of whom would become directly involved with the gunpowder plot later on. By 1591, Fawkes joined the military and served in the 80 Years War amongst Spanish Catholics, against the new Dutch Republic. Thereafter, he served in various skirmishes before joining Sir William Stanley, a reputable officer who'd earned the recommendation of Queen Elizabeth I herself. But after having surrendered the city of Deventer to the Spanish, prior to Fawkes' enlisting, he'd lost her favour and instead of trying to earn it back, chose to switch sides instead and join the Spanish Catholics. Fawkes became a junior officer under the command of Sir William Stanley and by 1603 had been recommended for captaincy, evidently not doing too badly for a soldier. It is believed that during his time at war, Fawkes garnered a liking for explosives and became skilled with the usage of gunpowder. It may very well have been for these expertise alone that he would end up becoming recruited into the infamous conspirator fold against the king. Instead of pursuing what could have been a promising military career, Fawkes chose to travel to Spain and sought support for what would have been considered a Catholic revolution in England, though he didn't find much in the way of support. What he did find though was a man named Thomas Winter, an Englishman who appeared to be in Spain searching for the very same kind of support from the Spanish. The two bonded over their Catholic views and for their despising of King James I, and it would seem that Fawkes would earn Winter's trust, so much so in fact that he would invite him to join the secret Cabal back in London, a small band of Catholics who wanted to take matters into their own hands. It was 1604 when Winter brought Fawkes into the fold of the Conspirators, those that were led by a man named Robert Catesby, it is interesting then that Robert Catesby is so grossly overlooked when it comes to the gunpowder plot, despite most certainly being the leader of this notorious fellowship. Their plan was quite simple, in theory. They would kill King James I and replace him with his daughter, Princess Elizabeth Stuart. At the time, the princess was just 9 years of age, but the conspirators believed that she would be an ideal candidate, at least amongst the available options to succeed as a Catholic monarch. It had already been decided that Prince Henry would be killed along with his father, whilst Prince Charles and Princess Mary were too young to ascend the throne and wouldn't serve as well in the grand scheme. Princess Elizabeth Stuart though already had some experience with certain political formalities and was therefore the best of, arguably, a bad bunch. The idea was that immediately after the explosions in London, the conspirators would descend upon the princess during an uprising in the Midlands, one that was loosely put together by Catesby, whereby they would kidnap her, raise her as a Catholic and install her on the throne as sort of a puppet queen for them and their Catholic ideals. The logistics of this were not actually ironed out, and if the plan seems optimistic or otherwise uncanny, it's because it really was. In fact, beyond a few hunting parties in the Midlands that Catesby had correspondence with, there wasn't much in the way of support when it came to the kidnapping, nor a clear plan of just how they were going to pull this off. But indeed, whilst many remember Guy Fawkes and often attribute him as being the mastermind of the gunpowder plot, it is actually Robert Catesby who was the real orchestrator of the things that were about to unfold. In fact, some might say that killing the King had never quite been on Guy Fawkes's mind, at least, not in the capacity in which Catesby would come to propose. You'll notice that Thomas Winter brought Guy Fawkes in on a group of people who were already planning to do this, with or without him, and that in some sense, Guy Fawkes was merely just in the wrong place at the wrong time. However, the fact that gunpowder and demolition was something of his speciality, and the fact that he was virtually unknown amongst spy networks on the account of having been in Spain it made him the ideal candidate for Catesby to recruit, and an integral one at that. The conspirators would meet in May 1604 at a pub known as the Duck and Drake in the trendy Strand district of London, a pub which might I add seems to have vanished from all historical accounts after having been likely demolished. Here they would discuss the details of their plan, where Catesby would come to assign their roles and talk over not only the pragmatics of pulling off such a thing, but also the moral implications of collateral damage. Conspirators such as Winters himself had expressed reluctance over the proposed obliteration, but it would appear that Catesby had a way with words and people, for he was able to convince those with doubts that this was absolutely the most necessary way to proceed. Guy Fawkes however did not appear to be one who needed convincing and he may have seen Catesby and his diabolical scheme as a necessary evil to rid Protestant rule and reaffirm Catholic tradition. Thomas Percy, a member of the conspirators, would soon gain access to a house in London, and Guy Fawkes was assigned the role as caretaker for the property. It was around this time that Guy also was thought to have adopted the pseudonym John Johnson and became something of an assistant to Percy. Whilst it is difficult to ascertain the exact duties of Fawkes during this time, he certainly was not the renegade leader that many paint him out to be, but instead comes across, at least historically, as more of a lackey, one who knew the science and the technicalities behind detonation, but not one who called the shots, by any means. There's also an idea here that the conspirators occupied the house that Percy had come to obtain, and used it as a starting point for which to dig a tunnel, all the way to the Houses of Parliament, where they would lay their explosives. However, there is no evidence for this tunnel, and after thorough investigation over the years, such a route was never found. The idea comes from Thomas Winter's confession, where he makes note of a tunnel being dug, but either the dig site had not been as significant as Winter suggested, or the whole thing had been abandoned after being deemed too laborious, or perhaps, unsafe. Interestingly, Fawkes would later corroborate the claim during his own interrogation, furthermore suggesting that there was indeed a tunnel, but even he was unable to locate it when prompted. Another idea was that the tunnel and the mentioning of said tunnel by the conspirators was merely a fabrication by the government. In any case, the digging would come to a halt when a conspirators heard a noise from a room above. Guy was sent out to investigate and upon returning had discovered that the room above was actually an undercroft, directly beneath the House of Lords. Furthermore, by stroke of luck, the undercroft was up for rent and would certainly be the perfect place to store the gunpowder before its explosion. But even this had its problems. It was during this time in July 1605 that the plague was running rampant and everything was being shut down. As you can see, the more things change, the more they stay the same, eh? These closures included parliament, who would lock their doors and not reopen them again until November 5th, delaying the conspirators entire operation. Of course, these delays would not come without complications, the most critical being the decaying of the gunpowder. So as to compensate for this loss, more gunpowder was brought, along with firewood, that was used to conceal it. But of course, more gunpowder required more money, and more money required more people to be recruited into the fold. Thomas Winters and Thomas Percy were instructed by Catesby to work their connections and obtain the money necessary to ensure the success of their plan. By this point, even more people were aware of the plot than was advisable, and in a community so in favour of Protestant belief, it's a wonder how the conspirators were able to keep this as secret for as long as they did. In fact, word of the conspirators trying to finance large volumes of gunpowder soon spilled into the shadowy alleyways of London, where it was heard by the authorities who descended upon the Undercroft and found Guy there. But on this occasion, Guy was able to convince the guards to leave, declaring that he was merely a servant named John Johnson and that he was working for Thomas Percy. Whilst the conspirators were able to secure the gunpowder in a total of 36 barrels, Later science reveals that in order to destroy the House of Lords, only half of the stash would have been necessary. Perhaps then Guy Fawkes wasn't as smart as some suggest he was, and that his expertise in demolition wasn't so precise after all. Fawkes' need for such a large volume of gunpowder jeopardised the plan and if this was a miscalculation on his behalf, it could have been a crucial one. But others suggest that this was no error at all and that Guy Fawkes' hatred for the Protestants had become so venomous that he wanted more gunpowder so as to facilitate absolute decimation. During this time, Fawkes would be sent overseas in one final attempt to gain foreign support for their campaign, but returned once more to London with little to show for the effort. There is an idea that he came under the crosshairs of the 1st Earl of Salisbury, Robert Cecil, who employed a network of spies throughout Europe and that one of them caught whiff of Fawkes' tyranny in his attempts to form allegiances against the King. The spy in question was Captain William Turner, who frequently reported back to the Earl with various webs of information, though upon reflection, none seemed to indicate that he was aware of the plot at all. Whilst Turner's reports do speak of Fawkes, and even of his involvement with Catesby and the Conspirators, those who Turner refers to as honorable friends, ironically enough, he does not mention anything particularly dubious about them. In fact, his letters didn't even reach the Earl until the end of November, pretty much a whole month after the plot had been foiled. Put simply, Captain William Turner, worst spy ever. Additionally, an interesting note about the Earl Robert Cecil is that he actually served as the Secretary of State to King James, and that through his network of spies, it is theorised that he did in fact know of the plot, or at least, had some inkling as to what the conspirators were planning. Other conspiracy theories indicate that Cecil actually served as an agent provocator and that he may have even funded Catesby and the operation under the guise of sharing their mission, only to thwart them all at the last moment. Fawkes was assigned the pivotal role of lighting the fuse of the gunpowder which had been strategically placed in the cellars under the Palace of Westminster. After having lit the fuse, he was to escape across the River Thames in a boat, where simultaneously, the revolt in the Midlands would see the other conspirators capture Princess Elizabeth Stuart and begin the process of writing the New Future under Catholic Regiment. Fawkes however was not instructed to reunite with his allies in the Midlands, considering that his role in the destruction would have no doubt earned him the contention of much of the country. Whilst many of the Catholics would have been glad to see the back of King James, regicide was not something that many would have condoned, something that Robert Catesby would come to understand when he sought refuge in his final days. Instead, Fawkes was instructed to head to the continent, where he would explain to the Catholic powers of what he had done in the name of Catholicism, and that regicide or mass murder even, had been his holy duty in order to preserve their beliefs. But as we know, Guy Fawkes didn't actually get this far. In fact, some might say that he'd drawn the short straw with the whole lighting the fuse business and would endure a punishment at the result of it that he may not have necessarily deserved. Others are able to identify the ironic sentiments of Fawkes being caught at the last minute and that in being instructed to light the fuse, he had one job that he had somehow botched into oblivion, but was it entirely his fault? Well no, not at all. You may remember me mentioning the byplot plot earlier on, yet another plot that had taken place years prior, of Catholics trying to get the upper hand over King James, but that they'd been betrayed by other Catholics and ultimately snuffed out by the authorities before any real damage could be done. Well, pretty much the exact same thing is thought to have happened again. The consciences of a few conspirators got the better of them, and they became concerned over the safety of fellow Catholics who would no doubt be caught up in the blasts. It was on October 26 of 1605 that Lord Monteagle received an anonymous letter warning him to stay away from parliament when it reopened, for it would be blown to smithereens. Whilst the writer of the letter remains mysteriously unknown, it is fairly obvious that one of the Catholic conspirators sought to protect Monteagle and perhaps hoped that he would sound the alarm that would put an end to the entire plot. Many have suspected that the author of the letter had been Francis Tresham, a Catholic conspirator who was a fairly new addition to the team, but one who also had familial ties with Lord Monteagle as a brother-in-law. For some, Francis Tresham is considered to be the catalyst for which the gunpowder plot began to unravel, for it was this letter that shined a light on the imminent devastation. One of Lord Monteagle's servants became aware of the letter, and would you believe it, turned out to be something of a spy himself and a sympathiser of the conspirators. Basically, everyone was betraying everyone as if it was going out of style. With this knowledge, the servant quickly informed Catesby that Lord Monteagle was now aware that something fishy was going on. The idea that Francis Tresham was the traitor is further suggested by the fact that both Robert Catesby and Thomas Winter immediately suspected him of writing the letter, probably on the account that he'd voiced dismay about killing his brother-in-law in a prior meeting. In fact, the two actually went to confront Tresham and threatened to hang him for his betrayal, but Tresham was able to convince them that he was innocent of doing such a thing. He did however urge them to abandon the whole idea, now that Monteagle was somewhat aware of it, but Catesby did not heed such a warning, instead he believed, or at least chose to believe that Monteagle thought the letter was nothing more than a hoax. The reality that they'd been compromised did not affect Catesby and he seemed adamant that the plan was still going ahead without any real contingency thereafter. It appeared that Guy Fawkes was notified of the letter as well, and that he was instructed to check on the gunpowder to make sure that nothing had been disturbed. As far as he was concerned, no one had come down to the cellars, and if they had, then they had not found the gunpowder. Therefore, Catesby concluded that whilst Lord Monteagle was suspicious, he was not about to uncover the master plan, and so, the show would still go on but Monteagle's suspicion ate away at him, so much so that he brought the letter to the attention of none other than Robert Cecil, the Earl of Salisbury and the Secretary of State. A Cecil would alert the King of the potential threat, but again, there are ideas here that Cecil might have taken his time in doing this, so as to allow the entire plot to ripen and then thwart the entire operation at its apex, whereby the failure would be dramatically publicised and used to justify further Catholic persecution. Others suggest that Monteagle had written the letter himself, for he too was aware of the plot and simply snitched on Catesby and the conspirators to make himself look like the hero. Ironically enough, Monteagle was indeed considered to be a hero and earned himself a hefty pension for being the man to lift the lid on the entire plot. When Cecil showed King James the letter, He immediately took it to mean that someone was going to do something drastic. As some of you may know, King James wasn't exactly the type to ignore such a thing. I mean, this is the same guy who believed witches were trying to kill him. Whilst his paranoia can be forgiven, considering that people had already tried to take his life, in fact he was probably a king who lived in anticipation of forceful usurpation, King James was still a man of action. The letter in question may as well have been an explicit declaration of intent on behalf of the conspirators, for King James immediately ordered Member of Parliament, Sir Thomas Nevet, to conduct a search of the grounds. This of course included the disused undercroft where Guy Fawkes had set up shop. Some say that the storeroom was rushed by guards. Others say that Fawkes had already lit the match and was heading out the door when he was apprehended. In any case, Fawkes was arrested, though he still stuck to his story that he was John Johnson and that he was merely looking after the place for Thomas Percy. That was until the guards had the sense to look underneath the firewood where they found the barrels of gunpowder. Having been literally caught red-handed, Fawkes had no other means of escape and was taken in for interrogation. This interrogation though, was the stuff of legend and not in a good way. For example, this was Guy's signature before the torture had begun, and this was Guy's signature afterwards. Indeed, this man had been brutalised so badly that he couldn't even write his own name by the end of it. He continued with the ruse that his name was John Johnson, at least, in the beginning. He was questioned by members of the King's Privy Chamber, but ultimately remained defiant when it came to revealing the names of other conspirators, whilst he did not deny his possession of the gunpowder—I mean, how could he? Nor did he deny his intentions. He did deny any knowledge of his fellow saboteurs. I'll say one thing for Guy Fawkes—he wasn't a snitch. Yet, Fawkes proceeded to be most uncooperative, and instead of trying to appease his captors, like most men in his position would have done, Fawkes chose to antagonize them. When asked why he was in possession of so much gunpowder, Fawkes replied to blow you Scotch beggars back to your native mountains. In fact, his only regret in the matter was that he'd failed to do so. In a more unprecedented act, King James actually presented before Guy, and both target and assassin came face to face. Why I say it was unprecedented was because the royalty did not have the habit of entertaining those who had come to kill them often they were dismissed, executed for treason, and passed out of the royal's mind until the next vagrant tried their luck. But call it morbid curiosity, or the desire to exercise his wit, King James invited himself into Fox's presence, where he was thought to not only admire his boldness, but also what he would describe as Roman resolution. Despite this admiration, it did not stop King James from tossing Fawkes to the torturers, in an effort to reveal the names of his allies. Perhaps if Fawkes had been more diplomatic in his responses to King James, he might not have earned such a grim fate. But Guy Fawkes was ardent in his Catholicism and chose to further antagonise the king, showing the same decorum as a zealot. When asked if he was content to blow up not just the king, but his young children, the lords, the archbishop, the gentry, the merchants, innocent labourers, commoners and fellow Catholics, Fawkes responded with the same phrase Catesby had given when talking about unintended casualties, which was, a desperate disease requires a dangerous remedy. Evidently, there were no amount of words that would convince Fawkes that his methods were not as righteous as he claimed them to be, considering the death and destruction that would have been left in his wake. King James recognised the Catholic zeal forged in Forks, and perhaps knew he was too far gone, in not just his extremist methodology, but far beyond any redemption either. Manacles were used at first in order to extract a confession from Forks as to who his accomplices were. The manacles would see Guy suspended by the arms, a particularly painful form of torture, which could see the victim suffer from the maiming of the hands. But this was the gentler form of torture, would you believe? In any case, Fawkes remained strong and did not spill a word about who he was working with. It wasn't until he was moved to the Tower of London and shown the rack did Guy's lips begin to loosen. And who could blame him? After all, there weren't many who'd successfully endured the rack and not sung like a canary shortly afterwards. It was a most diabolical device after all, That stretched the victim's body to the point that limbs were dislocated and ripped from their sockets. In fact, there appears to be only one case of someone facing the rack and still refusing to speak and that was Anne Askew, a protestant martyr who was condemned as a heretic by Henry VIII. Sadly for Guy Fawkes, or for his conspirators, he did not share her resolve and before the end of the week, he conceded. Whether or not the rack was actually used in the torture is up for some debate, but what can be agreed is that Guy Fawkes was horrendously tormented and that the results of his bloody interrogation left him as little more than a shell of the man that he once was. Meanwhile the conspirators became well aware that Fawkes had been captured and had long since left London. Catesby, who had already fled to the Midlands, had stopped at Dunstable where he was caught up by fellow conspirator Ambrose Rookwood, who informed him that Fawkes had not only been captured, but had failed his mission altogether. Still seemingly fixated on fulfilling the plan of creating a Catholic uprising and snatching the Princess Elizabeth Stuart to place her on the throne, Catesby continued on to the Midlands. Of course, with King James still alive, the plan had no basis. To be honest, it's argued that it had no real basis to begin with. If Fawkes had been successful, it is not expected that the people of the time would acquiesce to such a massacre, and would be even less inclined to worship a queen who was so obviously imposed on them by the very terrorists who'd caused such devastation. When Catesby arrived at the Midlands, he rendezvoused with the hunting parties he'd coerced into helping him kidnap the Princess Elizabeth. But given that King James was still alive, capturing the princess seemed pretty pointless. It's unclear as to what Catesby's motives here were, or whether he had simply lost the plot and was doing his best to wing it, but he ended up lying to the hunting parties by saying King James was indeed dead. Through this lie he was able to convince them into joining him, but again we cannot be certain as to what he was thinking and it becomes increasingly obvious that he was sticking to the plan through sheer stubbornness and possibly in some blind hope that through his dedication God would provide him with a miracle. No miracle came however. In the following days, the conspirators raided castles for supplies and weapons. They were desperate for any small relief they could get, and having ridden through the wintry landscape, they were cold, fatigued, and most importantly, running out of faith. Upon arriving in Catholic communities, they found they were shunned by the very people they had tried to fight for, mostly on the account the communities were afraid of being associated with them. They were shown no sympathy and before long the hunting party had dwindled to merely a few loyal yet doomed Catholics. By this point Fawkes had already confessed the names of the conspirators and Catesby was now a wanted man. Early the next morning Catesby and the remaining outlaws went to confession before taking the sacrament. It's understood that this was not just them attending a Catholic custom, but instead their own recognition that they did not have long left to live. They were met with hostility by other Catholics on their journey, who had now learned of the news of what it was they had tried to do, and believe it or not, the Catholics were dismayed by their sadistic plot. Again, whilst many were perhaps keen to see the back of King James, a few were actually keen to lend their support to Regicide, Furthermore, many understood the implications of killing King James and destroying the House of Lords would have, not just the horrendous loss of life, but also the loss of a king, something that would prove to have egregious political ramifications. All this would only serve to diminish morale amongst the conspirators more and more. For now, even the very people they'd set out to fight for had shunned them. Still, perhaps out of pride or a blind sense of righteousness, Catesby would not admit defeat and found himself holed up in Holbeach Beach House, on the edge of Staffordshire. Here, he and the conspirators would make their final stand against the King's men and also attempt to earn themselves the Darwin Award of 1606. You see, amongst the munitions that they'd raided from various castles during their escape, they'd stolen a lot of gunpowder, But as even the weather turned against them, the gunpowder had been soaked. So in order to dry it off, Catesby had his men laid out in front of an open flame. Now perhaps this is a reflection of how tired, beaten and desperate they'd become, that they were now giving birth to such ludicrous ideas, or maybe this was a sign of how inexperienced they were with gunpowder, highlighting the importance of Guy Fawkes' role. As you might imagine, a spark from the open flame landed on the powder, which resulted in a blast of flame. Catesby and his allies were engulfed in the fire, a bitter irony for those who tried to exact this same very tactic on the House of Lords. Perhaps the only sign of divinity here was that no one died. Catesby and the others, albeit scorched, were not put out of their misery, but instead forced to endure it. In fact, One of their men, who'd been nearest to the fire, actually had his eyes burnt out of his sockets and he remained that way in sheer agony until the Sheriff of Worcester arrived with a company of 200 men in the morning. Thomas Winter made a break for it, but he was shot in the shoulder and apprehended. The childhood friends of Guy Fawkes, John and Christopher Wright, who were amongst the conspirators, were also shot down. Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy were the only two remaining conspirators in the house, and realising that there was no way out of this, chose to face their deaths without fear by stepping out to meet the sheriff's company. But as if their luck couldn't get any worse, both Catesby and Percy were dropped by the same bullet, an act that would be determined to be a pure fluke, but also probably tooted as pure skill by the marksman who pulled the trigger. Whilst Percy was killed immediately from the shot, Catesby was able to crawl back inside the house, where he spent his final moment clutching a picture of the Virgin Mary. You could argue over the idiotic choices that Catesby had come to make in his final days, but it must be said, the man knew how to die. Despite being shot and crawling to his death, he was still looking for a way to best exemplify his Catholic beliefs, and what better way to do that by using his own self as an emblem of Catholic martyrdom. But even that would work to serve against him, for the picture of the Virgin Mary and the gold crucifix he wore were sent back to London to demonstrate what Catholic symbols and idols could do to a man's mind and how they could inspire him to plot terrible, monstrous things. Back in London, those who hadn't fled in time were rounded up and imprisoned, some along Guy Fawkes himself. In fact, there exists an account that Winter was imprisoned beside Guy Fawkes and the pair of them were under the assumption that they were all alone, allowing them to converse freely about what had taken place. But yet again, Robert Cecil was hard at work and had one of his spies intercept the conversation to learn more and thus serve as evidence of their guilt. At their trial, they were of course found guilty of high treason and condemned to be drawn backwards by horse from the tower, with their heads near to the ground, all the way to the execution site. There they would be hanged within an inch of their lives before being released, only to be castrated or disemboweled. They would then be decapitated and have their body parts dismembered, where the severed sections would be displayed in the open to be consumed by the fowls of the air. On January 31st, 1606, Guy Fawkes, Thomas Winter, Ambrose Rookwood and Robert Keyes, yet more conspirators, were drawn from the towers and taken to the Old Palace Yard at Westminster, directly opposite the building that they had attempted to destroy. Winters, Rookwood and Keyes were hanged and quartered as promised. That of course only left Guy Fawkes, who was probably left until last on purpose, Here at the scaffold, he asked King James for forgiveness, but did so holding up his crosses. Dehabilitated by the torture he'd endured, he required assistance by the hangman to actually climb the ladder to the noose. But it's said that when he got there, he either climbed too high on purpose so that the rope was incorrectly set, leading to his neck being snapped, or that he'd simply jumped from the scaffold to his death thus avoiding such a gruesome execution and denying the Protestant Monarch of relishing in his demise. Nonetheless, his corpse was quartered and his body parts were sent to the four corners of the kingdom, where they were displayed in the hopes that other Catholics wouldn't have any bright ideas of their own. Whilst we hear so much about Guy Fawkes, very little is known about the man beyond his Catholic militancy, and his expertise in demolition. Former school friend and Jesuit priest Oswald Tessimond described Fawkes as a pleasant character, one who was approachable, cheerful and having good manner. He was also thought to be fiercely loyal to his friends, something that is evident given the torture he'd endured to protect the other conspirators. It is also believed from Tessimond that whilst Fawkes was drawn to Catesby's plot because of his hate of the Protestants, He was also appealed by the handling of gunpowder in this endeavour, in what he deemed was a more professional capacity than just warfare. There are other claims that state Fawkes was married and that he did father a son, but these claims have little in the way of solid evidence. As mentioned earlier on this video, Londoners then onwards were encouraged by King James to celebrate the day Guy Fawkes was caught by lighting bonfires, And that this would thereafter be known as a day of deliverance, a day the king escaped death, and a day that God made his allegiance clear that he was with the Protestants and not the Catholics. This idea would rage back and forth until around the 19th century, when religious stigma with the 5th of November was dropped and the night was marked with more of a festive occasion filled with fireworks. Today many consider Guy Fawkes to be something of a virtuous character, a hero even, a man who stood for what he believed in and paid the ultimate price for it. Some refer to him as the last man to enter parliament with honest intentions, and that whilst his methods were extreme and pretty insane, at least he owned it. Many works of literature paint Guy Fawkes in a sympathetic light, particularly those of the Romance period, where he came to be depicted more along the lines of an action hero. Who stood for the little man against the political juggernaut of British monarchy, church and state. Even in our time today, many look back on Guy Fawkes as a major icon and as the historian Lewis Cole tells, it's a potentially powerful instrument for the articulation of postmodern anarchism.